You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Democracy as a way of life requires that the citizens of the democracy share an education in common, a set of stories and aptitudes, of virtues and even experiences from which we can draw so that there's an us there to govern. Thus, the education of the citizenry is always a live political question. And to pursue that question, Christian Humanist Profiles is pleased and proud to partner with CraftLit, a podcast about crafting and literature, to present this interview with Elizabeth Green, whose new book, Building a Better Teacher, explores some of the often neglected angles of public education policy, namely what we teach teachers when we teach them to teach. Many thanks to Heather Ordover, the host of Craft Lit, as well as to Kristen Philippic, our publicity liaison, who set this up. And now, on to the interview. Thank you for downloading this podcast. If you're a Craft Lit listener, you're going to wonder if Heather came down with the cold and moved to Tennessee. She hasn't. This is Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist Podcast, and we're doing a joint podcast and an interview with author Elizabeth Green about her recent book, Building a Better Teacher. We're both excited to be doing this project, and we hope that listeners to both of our shows will check the other show out, Craft Lit, Their People Are Just Better, Christian Humanist Podcast, The Best Educated Ears on the Internet, Two Great Tastes, They Taste Great Together, Come Listen to Each Other's Show. With that, welcome Elizabeth Green, and thank you for coming on this interview. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We are both very excited. And actually, my husband is excited in absentia. He read your book before I did. Oh, cool. That's cool. <laughs> you get around. And and my wife will get excited after I actually pass her the book because I didn't want to give it to her before I did the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Jealously guarding the good stuff. No, I was just afraid she'd put it somewhere and I wouldn't be able to find it. <laughs> Elizabeth, I enjoyed this book from the outset, and one of its true strengths is its emphasis on debunking the myth of what you call the charismatic teacher. Uh, tell our listeners about that myth and its place in education policy con- conversations, and if you're inclined, you can give us a brief outline about what makes that myth in particular so poisonous to teacher education. Sure. The myth that I'm talking about is the idea that when we think about what makes a good teacher, we tend to think about personality traits that are ingrained and natural and not learned. So things, you know, when we think about teachers who have made a difference, we think about the charisma that they had, the way that they engaged us through their magical personality or their extroversion or their excitement about um students and learning. But in fact, when researchers try to find a personality trait that will be predictive of which teachers are effective at helping students learn, they find that there is no personality trait that predicts that. Um, You can be extroverted or introverted, uh, humorous or serious, and still be a great teacher. So what matters is actually much more learned skills and knowledge And uh, that's a really important distinction because it means that when we're trying to improve teaching and find better teachers, this process should not be about trying to find people with the natural-born personality traits that will predestine them to greatness, but instead we have to also think about how can we help people learn the skills and knowledge that they need to be effective teachers. And I appreciate that. You know, I I teach a lot of old Greek books, and one of the things that Aristotle says, and I I didn't know if you knew that you agreed with Aristotle or not, but you do, uh, is that it might happen by coincidence that some people are just born with a way of speaking that is effective rhetoric, but it is actually better to think of it as a techne, as a practice that one can improve and one can theorize about and so on and so forth. So my, my first thought was, aha, an, an Arist- Aristotelian book about education. Uh, Heather, <laughs> what do you think about all that? I Yeah, it's well, it was fascinating to me because I used to teach high school English and I had theater training. So for me, it was easy to get up in front of a classroom and keep their attention. But I mm-hmm. had to learn the stuff that you talked about in, in your book. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the things that I'd been thinking as I was reading over our questions and, and 
rereading over parts of your book is I just want to pick your book up and take a stack of them around with me and hand them out to everyone who's involved in education. And it's frustrating because I'm, I, I sit there looking at it and thinking, okay, well, who who could we get it into the hands of to make this the most effective thing? Like when you were writing this, were you thinking teacher? Were you thinking administrator? Were you thinking teacher trainer? Did you have an image of that? I One of the people I think I was writing for was myself before I started writing the book. I had been, you know, I, when I got the um, assignment that led to this book, which is a magazine story assignment about teacher quality, I had been covering education for several years and I thought that I understood some of the basics of education, but I realized when I dug into teaching, which really is at the heart of the educational enterprise, obviously, I realized that I didn't know much about teaching and what I didn't know was definitely hurting some of my assumptions about how education should be shaped. And the more I learned, the more I realized that I had these assumptions that were wrong and that I wanted to help other people who might hold those assumptions change them in the same way that uh, people who I write about in this book change the way I think about education. So I think that's, you know, who who are those people? It's um, everyone from uh, parents who are thinking about how do I get my child into the classroom with the best teacher to policymakers who really deeply care about education, but maybe don't have a lot of experience teaching. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I keep thinking about some teachers who knew their content area, but didn't know how to yeah. ask questions about it yeah. and didn't know how to do what, one of the things that I thought was most important early on in the book is how do you use a mistake that a child makes? to get them to figure out what the answer is and more importantly, why they went the direction they went. Why did you come up with that number? Right. Where did that come from? And that's not instinctive in our, in our culture right now. I hope it changes, but that's very hopeful because that's something that people can learn. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Like, it's interesting that you said that your theater training prepared you. I, be really curious to hear the ways in which it did prepare you, but then you said there's other things you didn't know. And I think a huge domain that every teacher has to learn is that first they have to really become a master of the subject they're teaching, and then they have to become a master of how students think about the subject they're teaching. And those two (laughs) things are not the same. So like I write about the math knowledge for teaching. So just even to teach elementary school math, like basic arithmetic, fractions, division, multiplication, um, mathematicians don't know uh, how students are going to misunderstand that and then understand it. It's just not in the domain of traditional mathematical knowledge. So it it really is not enough just to uh, know the subject. And this other domain of knowledge starts with Right, just like you said, how did the student think about this? And then how can I structure an experience to uh, target an underlying misunderstanding about that subject? It's really amazingly complex. And the fact that we ask teachers to figure this out pretty much on their own without Mm -hmm. preparation is just insane to me. Well, and I think it's even even harder, Nathan, at the college level, because when I taught at the University of Arizona, nobody had any teacher training. Or- right. And this is one of the other reasons why I was so excited to read this book and, and to talk to you, Elizabeth, because I actually run the new faculty training program here at Emanuel College where I teach. I mean, a lot of the things that you're talking about, you know, I've seen in other contexts, you know, talking largely about a rhetorical mode of education at the college level. But One of the things Mm -hmm. that I thought was especially interesting in your book was you talk about the ways that publication and tenure have actually made the practices Mm -hmm. of teaching, even in schools of education, a marginal activity. Um, In your research, how has that pressure to get bylines in peer-reviewed journals affected some of the reform attempts that you narrate? I guess it's no surprise to anyone in a university that 
as a faculty member, the top priority is research and publication almost mm-hmm. across the board rather than teaching. But as you say, what's even more surprising is that this even applies to schools of education right. that are there to train teachers. And what it means is that there's not only a lack of focus on how to teach future teachers, but also there's a lack of research on teaching as a practice. (laughs) So the research is, you're much more rewarded for studying within a formal discipline. So either the psychology of education or the history of education, sociology of education, economics of education, political science of education, but not education as a discipline of its own right in which the the thing of focus is how to teach. And the reason, one of the things that makes that really hard is when researchers do try to turn teaching into something, an object of inquiry, uh, it, it requires a different way to structure their research and their work. So I write about teachers who tried to do this and they created, they had to create a situation where they could teach you know, sort of part-time, but teach real students and then study the, their, the practice of their own teaching or study others' practice. And that just that structure of how to build a research study is not, uh, it goes against the grain of how things are supposed to work. So having to be accountable both to teaching these children and to studying that teaching and publishing about it is very challenging when uh, there's no real disciplinary rewards for studying that. So it's, it's you know, there's many ways in which teaching gets, uh, becomes second, the second focus or marginalized. I had always wondered if that was one of the reasons why when I was teaching, we called it flavor of the month that, you know, oh, and this mm-hmm. week's educational theory that we now have to apply in our classroom or, you know, risk being written up. And it, it felt like people were just making stuff up to keep their jobs mm-hmm. at the at the college level. And it disillusions you quickly in the classroom. And I think it also makes you distrustful of stuff that, that could be useful, which is why I really liked exactly. your book, because everything you talk about is very practical. Exactly. So when there's no reward for being really tied into practice, then the things, the the flavors of the month, as you say, that get advanced are likely not to be connected to reality. And there's other things that prevent high quality thoughts about teaching too. So it's not just the university level. It's also some of the realities in K to 12 schools themselves and in universities that make innovation challenging. So one is just the culture of privacy around each classroom. Given that teachers have very few opportunities to think together about their teaching, that increases the likelihood that there's going to be ideas advanced as innovations that don't actually reflect uh, rigorous thought about what will really work and be applicable. Similarly, a lack of common decisions about what students should learn in the first place makes it really hard to introduce innovations because it means that a teacher might have a great idea about how to teach one thing, but the other teacher is teaching something totally different. And what you're teaching matters just as much as how you teach it. So there's a lot of structural impediments to really practice and practical innovation about teaching. And I think that leads to an understandable resistance among teachers to, as you say, the flavor of the month. One of the common uh, sayings that I heard is, this too shall pass. Um, That is a mantra of teachers. And I understand that. Well, and that actually leads into one of the questions that I had that's tricky is the common core and how people are responding, both teachers. And and I understand that a lot of the, well, every complaint I've read is about implementation. It's not actually about the standards. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that people who have read the standards but haven't necessarily taught under them seem to be saying is they are worried that at the lower levels that the amount of rigor and critical thinking that's being asked of the younger kids is too too early. But in your book, you had some really interesting research about the six-month-olds 
And I wondered if you could mm-hmm. explain that, because I think a lot of craftlet people would be fascinated by what you found. Sure. So some of the really interesting studies about how people learn, look at how very young children learn. And what they find is that children develop uh, a conceptual idea of how the world works rather than just sort of memorizing by rote. So children will have expectations about what's logical based on what they've seen. They actually have an inner logic about things like uh, spatial reasoning and how if they see a large object hit a small object, they expect that that will the small object will move farther than if it were hit by a smaller object. Like if you see a big hammer hit something, you know it's going to hit harder than a small hammer. Children at a very young age develop these expectations of what is logical and they react with surprise when they see a violation of logic, even if they haven't been taught uh, through a rule-oriented instruction about what to see. So the the conclusion is children are making sense of the world. They take in data just like adults do, and they draw conclusions about it through reasoning. And with this, the implications of this are is that we have to treat children as reasoners, people who uh, actively reason about what makes sense given what they've seen. We can't just expect them only to be told, uh, this is a rule, you must memorize it and follow it. Mm -hmm. Did your head just explode when you read that (laughs) six-month-old study? (laughs) (laughs) My head did. I went, what? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really incredible what um, very young children are able to do. And I think that translates into when a, a skilled teacher is working in an environment where she's supported in helping students learn, even very young students are capable of extremely impressive reasoning. We just have to give them the right structures and treat them like people who will be able to reason. And they can do pretty amazing things. And I mean, that whole conceptual framework, I mean, really leads into your discussion of math class as a dialogue. Uh, And I mean, on one hand, I mean, that idea is as old as, you know, Plato's dialogue, Mano. I mean, that's a dialogue about math. But on the other hand, it's very different from the formula memorizing that I did when I was in grade school. So my question is, is this transition to a dialogic model at part to blame for all the anxiety about the so-called new math? Tell us a bit about the the dialogical math teaching that features so prominently here and how starting with we instead of with I differs from mm-hmm. what I and probably many of our listeners grew up with. Yeah, that was great. I, I think it's, it is, again, the science of learning, uh, the contemporary research on how people learn absolutely backs up what Plato, we could learn in from Plato, you know, which is people are reasoners and they're also, they do reasoning better in a social context. So if the opportunity to have multiple ideas on the table um, creates a faster progression of ideas than if you're a single person working and learning alone. So how this applies in math class is that we have to get past the dichotomy that it's either we're memorizing rules or we're learning concepts. These things work together. So, for example, when people memorize, they memorize by connecting uh, lists to something that holds meaning for them. Um, like the one of the studies that's most famous about memory is of uh, a college student who was able to memorize many, many long strains of numbers. The way he was able to do that was by connecting the numbers to something that was meaningful to him. He was a track athlete. So he connected the numbers that were generated randomly to times in races that were had set records or his own times. He connected mm. a list to something that had meaning for him. Um, these Things are always connected. For another, in math, this plays out that when we're learning uh, the way basic arithmetic works, we can mem- we can practice and recite, uh, you know, our times tables or multiples of nine or multiples of seven, 
and we can do that and recite them, but also connect. The better thing is to do that while encouraging students to look for patterns in those numbers. Um, and the question is, if that is what it means to know, if, if what it means to know something is to both memorize and make sense at the same time, because these are connected, then what is the best way to help people think in that way about numbers or English literature or, or any kind of knowledge. Well, the best way is back to that platonic dialogic idea. The best way is to create spaces where people reason together about the ideas in a social space, but a structured space. So the, the more traditional method of teaching math, for example, would be to have a teacher demonstrate a right procedure, the right way to do something, have students practice that right way together with the teacher, and then have them practice that right way alone. Mm. The idea being if you just uh, learn this rule and practice it, then you will know how to do it forever. But the, the better way is to say, let's start with explaining to you why you would want to think about this and connect you to the question at the heart of the procedure. So, for example, if you're teaching multiplication, then you could have have a problem that forces students to grapple with what multiplication means, have them think on their own about what an answer might be, come up with different methods, and then share together the different ideas they come up with, discuss what uh, they can learn from each other's approaches, and through that, reach a better understanding of a good procedure to tackle this challenge of uh, multiplying two numbers. In this process, students will learn more deeply, not just what procedure works, but why it makes sense. And they'll see that these two things are connected. I I loved being able to see that fleshed out in your book because I started teaching in 93. So it was really the rise of the group work thing. And, And having experienced some group work and then watching my kids struggle with group work, there's always the the problem which some teachers tried to solve by saying, okay, you're going to be the leader and you're going to be the note taker and you're going to be the time, which means that three people aren't doing anything. And it's very frustrating for the kids and they start to hate group work. And I thought that this answers that fundamental problem with it. It's that we're giving them the wrong problems. Mm-hmm. If if the question is, okay, take what we just did and figure out what the volume is of this, or take what we just talked about and brainstorm a project where you're going to create a movie poster with all of these visual elements in it, you're going to wind up with one kid doing the work and the rest of them may be paying some attention. But if it's, right. the, if it's the we and if it's the how, how, how do you fix this, then it becomes not just more real world, because I kept thinking about those articles that we read years ago about General Motors and and the car companies throwing a bunch of people in a room and saying, okay, design a better car. (laughs) And that that was always the parallel that we were given as teachers as well. The kids are going to have to work like that. But we never Mm -hmm. learned how to get them to a question that would allow them to create that kind of structure for themselves. And I thought your your book did such a nice job of, of really demonstrating and showing showing people who had demonstrated how we could approach this better because it's so yes. exciting. I want to be in a classroom like the ones you described. <laughs> Me too. I think it's just merely saying that groups are important is absolutely not enough. The task that you give that group matters just as much. And it, I've sat in uh, you know many teacher education classes where the only thing being discussed is how can students work in groups and what are the different roles without any attention to what are they doing. And, you know, I, it's no surprise that when um, these ideas about group work are implemented without any attention to the content of what the group is doing, Mm -hmm. it can seem silly. It can seem like just another fad of the month. This too shall pass. And that was one of the other things that you talked about was the content area knowledge, which it's not just in math, but in English. I mean, but my theater background 
caused me problems because when I decided to go into teaching after after working in um, Hollywood for a few years, I I didn't have enough English credits. So I had to go in at 25 and getting my teaching credential and learn English literature and American literature and, you know, all sorts of literature, which was great. But that also meant that I realized that teachers didn't go in as an adult. They they just didn't have the content knowledge. They didn't have the enough of the scaffolding to, mm-hmm. to put it all together. I don't know, Nathan, when you were in grad school, did you did you start to see a different level of uh, understanding and ability to put the pieces together? Well, it's interesting. I was also just a shade older than my cohort because I went to seminary before I started grad school in English. Uh, so, I mean, it, it was one of those things where I had a better grasp of my own ignorance than, than my cohort did. Uh, well, no, no, no. Then they had of their own ignorance. They knew my ignorance well enough. But, uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that, yeah, I mean, with that experience, I was able to see these are the things that I need to do. But I think the, the idea of the content knowledge that you're pointing to uh, is something that really I, I kind of arrived at, you know, over the course of five years of working as a new faculty trainer, mm-hmm. namely that to know how to make advances in your field on a scholarly journal research level is a different kind of intellectual practice yeah. than yeah. the kind of content knowledge that allows you to initiate new reasoners into the field. So, I mean, that that second body of content knowledge, that's really what your book is about, Elizabeth. Yeah. What kinds of people are doing that kind of research these days? Yeah. Well, you know, one of them that I write about is uh, Deborah Ball's work in math teaching, where I think that's her most elaborated area. She's a former teacher who still teaches every summer, teaches math to children, uh, who uh, paired up with a mathematician to study what kind of knowledge she needed and her peers needed in order to teach math effectively. And, you know, she came up with this concept of mathematical knowledge for teaching, which means not quite math and not quite pedagogy pure, but some mix of the two. So, for example, mm-hmm. if it's one thing to know how to divide one fraction by another fraction, but how would you create a model that would help students understand what that means? Um, you know, she has, that's an actual question that is interesting to think through yourself. I, a lot of us think about, okay, well, I remember pizza is a thing that was involved or, um, <laughs> uh, how could, what kind of circle could I divide into pieces and then divide that into pieces? But, that's actually not a very good model to visualize the vision of one fraction by another fraction. And what an expert teacher will learn over time is, you know, what's better is to think about, think about a stick of butter and you have half, uh, one and a half sticks of butter and you need uh, to have a certain amount of, of cups, right? Another fraction that you have to divide that one and a half sticks into. That makes more sense. So that's the kind of thinking that um, it requires understanding what children and students will understand and then figuring out a model that will help move their understanding forward. So there's quite a lot packed into that knowledge. Um, Another area, interestingly, where some of this research is more active is physical education. Um, I think that's really interesting because Think about the the pedagogy of teaching stu- someone else to move differently or use their body differently. It's it's really really different to know how to be a great athlete, but it's a different thing to explain to somebody else how their own body will feel. Um, so I think it's very interesting that that's another area. But you know there are researchers who are trying to move this forward in other fields. And I think that's so important um, to encourage as uh, the thing we should be focusing our research on. Because if we can diagram and make clear what this knowledge is, to then we can help future teachers have it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring up PE because uh, actually tonight I'm going to the baseball diamond. I'm the uh, assistant coach for my daughter's t-ball team. And it's the first time I've ever done this. And I mean, uh, just realizing what a task it is to teach five-year-olds to throw a baseball uh, has really made me rethink, you know, what, what is it that I'm doing when I teach? So 
that's that, that I, I think it's great that PE is one of the fields that's actually thinking about this. I think it's almost easier, isn't it, in some ways? Because you can observe how your arm, or you can have the kids observe how your arm moves when you throw. But I think that that's one of the big challenges that Elizabeth's book does such a nice job of addressing is how does it look when I go like this? There's a weaver who wrote a book. This is how I go when I go like this. And it's the how do you teach people to do something that's that's physical? It's you watch, you learn, you observe, you try it, you test it on your own body. It either feels right or it feels wrong. They are watching you and coaching you to do it. And we don't we don't treat our classroom knowledge the same way. And it's I mean, we're supposed to when we go through student teaching and having a master teacher. And I was mm-hmm. lucky enough that my master teacher did badly in high school English when she was in high school. And she was the first yeah. person to tell you that. And because yeah. of that, she knew what was going to go mm-hmm. wrong. And so I watched her watch the kids and realized yeah. that I, as a teenager, I hadn't been a very good writer. I had I really struggled with it because I wanted to... I wanted to write like Douglas Adams, and that's a really bad way to write high school essays. <laughs> and so, what, but it's it's hard. Writing is a great metaphor, is a great example, and so is I think athletics. I mean, once you become an expert practitioner, whether it's once you master the essay, once you learn to throw, one of the features of expert practice is that you're no longer attending to some of the fundamental elements of how you learn to do it, right? I mean, think about, I know myself writing this book. I mean, it's torture to write sometimes, right? So we just forget all of the challenge that happened. We, you know, it's maybe a defense mechanism or something. But <laughs> it's better to forget. But you, as, and you know, similarly, like we forget what it was like to look at the letter combination EA and have to puzzle through why in some cases does E is EA pronounced like break, you know, A in some cases it's pronounced like beat, beat, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we forget that the, that, that was really confusing because now we're expert practitioners and we don't have to think about that. Well, teachers have to go back through their own, um, forgotten learning path, recreate it and figure out how to accelerate other people's learning. Um, you know, there's this saying, just because you're a bird doesn't make you an ornithologist. Actually, being an expert <laughs> practitioner um, is quite different than understanding how you came to do what you're able to do. Certainly. That is so true. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that so much of your book is set in Japan. And I found that fascinating because I, I came to this book with the same sorts of sort of it's a cultural difference assumptions. Uh, that I'm sure a lot of your readers will. So let yes. me boil down a complex and well-researched investigation into two assertions, and you can either <laughs> correct me or expand on them or whatever you think it might be helpful. So assertion number one, American math education defines excellence as avoiding or quickly correcting errors. Assertion number two, mm-hmm. Japanese math education defines excellence as the mindful exploration of errors. Do what you want to do with that. I like that. I like that summary. I think one of the major differences between um, the the two kinds of teaching is absolutely how they think about mistakes. If you have a model of learning that uh, really is about understanding and acknowledges that people, even six months old, are sense makers, then you have to allow people to make mistakes because you have to start where the person's understanding starts. So just because a student thinks that division by fractions means, you know, cutting up pies, um, doesn't mean that that doesn't, that's, you have to acknowledge that that mistake makes sense in the student's model of thinking. And then you have to figure out what is that model of thinking and figure out how to change it. So only by accessing students' real way of thinking first, can you change that way of thinking, which means that mistakes are very precious. They, they give a lot of data to the attentive teacher to say, 
aha, I understand. The student thinks that multiplication is merely a set of procedures or that division is merely cutting things up. They, what they don't understand is that there's a different model of division that I need to help them see. How can I help them see that? So absolutely. What's, what's deeply ironic about the story of Japan is that if you ask the best teachers in Japan, where did you learn to teach this way, they will all tell you, I learned from the U.S. These are American ideas. And if I could get the chance, I would love to come to your country to see these ideas really flourishing. Oh, well, <laughs> um, the problem is we did, we do have some great teachers and thinkers in this country who understand what it takes to learn and what it takes to teach, but we have a really terrible system for implementing those great ideas. So what we, we have great ideas, but we don't know how to implement them. In Japan, they know a great idea when they see one, and they also know how to implement it. So the, the, these more sophisticated ideas of what it means to know and learn and teach were welcomed into a system that treated teaching already like a craft that needed to be learned. And so schools are already set up in Japan and have been for many years so that teachers are constantly learning from one another about not just, you know, general pedagogical practices like how to help students listen and focus, but subject matter specific uh, pedagogical matters and how to write um, good curriculum and good problems. So as a result, the Japanese have taken our great American idea about what it means to know and learn and teach math well, and they have made it common. So every single classroom I went into in Japanese elementary schools, I found myself as an adult learning alongside the eight-year-olds <laughs> because it was sure. a really vibrant environment for learning, no matter who the teacher was. Is their teacher training program similar to ours, or is it more unified in its... Is it publish or perish at the college level so that everybody has to invent stuff, or is it like the normal schools that we used to have in the, the United States? The Japanese model is more like the normal school model that we used to have, right? And, and and so actually the Japanese built their education schools by coming to the U.S. Um, to visit our normal schools before our no normal schools disappeared. So you're referring to the fact that we used to have institutions that were solely dedicated to preparing future teachers. And so the professors at these institutions were often teachers themselves who were encouraged to make a study of their own teaching and invite their students instead of into a lecture hall into their classroom at the attached school. Well, this is how uh, Japanese education schools are also set up. There are schools attached to the education schools, and these schools become like laboratories for helping future teachers learn to teach and helping the ongoing development of, you know, even career teachers' knowledge. So it's, it's certainly not perfect, and there are many complaints that the Japanese will be happy to tell you all about, but what doesn't work better. But um, I think that feature in itself shows that they have a, an orientation towards learning and improvement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, honestly, I mean, that was one of my favorite parts of the books. And now that you've given away the, the mystery story, you know, I mean, I, I was kind of waiting to see who this, you know, Zen Buddhist samurai education master from Japan was. And it turns out it's John Dewey. <laughs> And I, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it turns exactly. out that, you know, they're being better Americans than we are. <laughs> exactly. Heart, it was heartbreaking. <laughs> you should see the um, preschools in Japan. I mean, they are doing uh, utopias. <laughs> I, truly. Um, and, and I think what's, what the Japanese understand that we have often not managed to pull off in this country is that 
what it means to treat students as learners is not to just let them run off on their own and figure everything out on their own. No, it means structuring very meaningful opportunities for them to take this up and learn faster than they ever could on their own. It actually means the teacher becomes even more in control of the situation and even more sophisticated about what she's doing. Um, So we have often thought, oh, in this country, progressive education means leave the children alone to figure this out. I mean, actually, some of the studies of that say that they are studying uh, whether pro- so-called progressive instructional methods are effective. These actually are studies of two scenarios: the the intervention group is, you know, a teacher in, is involved and the so-called progressive model, the control group is the teacher does nothing. No, wow. um, progressive education doesn't mean the teacher does nothing. It means that the teacher does more actually to treat the students as learners. So I think in Japan, they know that you can see it even in preschools where uh, the students, what it appears at first glance is that the students are just sort of playing in their own imaginary landscapes. But when you look a little bit closer, you realize that uh, and you talk to the teachers about what they've done while they've given the students, the students are creating a little pirate land for themselves because the teacher listened to the students, heard that they're interested in pirates, and so gave them a few materials that they knew the students could use to build a, an imaginary pirate world. So, you know, a little blue map that could be water, um, construction paper that could easily be rolled into a little pirate belt um, with a sword. And by giving these simple structured materials, they can let the students create for themselves the world that makes sense to them. But what that required was a lot of work on the teacher's parts. They needed to listen to the students, hear what they were interested in, pick out the thing they were interested in that they knew would advance their development in a way that they wanted to, and then create materials and structure in which the students could take that up and move forward towards that developmental path the teachers had in mind. Listening to the students, that's crazy talk. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. I tried to do it myself. One of the teachers I spent time with, he told me I had to try teaching myself. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to lead a discussion where I listen to students. It is really hard to do that in the moment. Um, To both listen for the right things, to know what to hear, know how to respond and move something forward. It's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. In fact, when I was prepping for the Regents, I did the juniors and my next door neighbor English teacher was a freshman teacher and she wanted me to go in and scare her freshmen by showing them the English Regents test at the time. And I was more than happy. And then she would come in because her skill set was that she could listen to kids just talking. She could have them tell her what their final paper topic was, and she would be able to turn around and say, then your thesis statement is going to need to be something like, and they would write it down and then they, you know, take it and run with it and expand on it. But I can't do that. I can't, I have to see it written down. And so we, you know, it was this wonderful opportunity where we got to play to our strengths, but that's also, it's listening to your colleagues as well as listening to the students to know that this is this is the kind of thing that might help the kids out, right? Yeah, right. and I'm and I'm reminded in uh, college English, you know, uh, whenever I tell people that I do free writing, but I provide very pointed prompts for them to do so. Inevitably, there will be someone who read a Peter Elbow book along the line who will say that's not free writing. So uh, <laughs> that, that that that's one of the parts of this book that you know made me feel vindicated in the way that I do that because I've always mm. said. Well, you're pro- you're you're probably right. It's not. I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> I'll have to invent another word and publish a paper about it. And yeah, there you go. Everybody will call it their Nathan papers. We're going to do Nathan writing now. Oh, I mean, it really forces you to think deeply about the concept of freedom, right? Like, like, what does it mean to really exercise creativity? Um, it's often structures bring out more creative expression yes. than a blank sheet of paper. That's my favorite quote from A Wrinkle in Time. 
is Mrs. W- Mrs. Oh. What's it has this great line where she says to Meg, "You know what a sonnet is?" And Meg says, "Yes." And she says it's fourteen lines and it's this very strict structure, but you can say anything you want within that structure. And I remember I was like, you know, 10 years old and I went, oh, that's why you have rules. And it is yes. it's beautiful because when you think about that, it's the difference between freedom and license. The freedom has a structure imposed upon it. We don't kill each other. We stop at stop signs, but we're free. Yes. Yes. And the Japanese teachers, I one of the paradoxes coming into Japanese education as an American is, you know, I expect we hear about and learn about the structured nature of the Japanese school system. It's a centralized system with a nationally agreed upon course of study. Um, and so we picture robotic teachers and students do where everyone is doing the exact same thing at every hour of the day. Yeah. But in fact, um, when I first went to a Japanese elementary school, I was one of the things I was told to prepare for was the noise level <laughs> of the students. And that was true compared to an American classroom, uh, American school, American schools are actually more orderly in a lot of cases than Japanese schools, um, where students have a lot of space to run around and shriek and share their ideas with one another. And what I came to think about was, uh, not the sonnet, but the haiku. So, uh, you know, teachers and students do have more structure in some ways, but because the structure is very smart, uh, they both have a lot of freedom within it, and it is a very empowering structure. So every teacher might be following the same course of study, but they will be very um, quick to tell you that nobody teaches, like, each of them, right? Each teacher in Japan really thinks of him or herself as a maestro who has a lot of power inside this structure to make their own decisions in the moment, uh, their decisions about how to teach and in what way. And it's it's really incredible what a structure can do to empower creativity. It gives me hope for the common core debates that continue on because it, it seems the same. You oh, know, yeah. that this This framework that that they've written out does a lovely job of providing teachers with jumping off points and things to look for and things to listen for if the kids are making mistakes, you know, well, what is it, what is it they missed somewhere along the way? Cause they did. That's all that, all that a mistake means is you miss something somewhere along the way and we have to figure out what it is. And it's also, you you said something earlier, actually, Nathan, about um, data. And I, I know that people have gotten slammed for talking about data driven teaching because they're thinking about it like a standardized test. But the kind of data that you're talking about collecting is what we used to call authentic assessment. And it it was never thought of as data back in the nineties, but it, but it is. And it's the, the most useful data you can get is listening to the kids and hearing, hearing where they're having a hard time and Mm -hmm. and where they're tripping up. Yes. And I think, you know, there's a, a parallel here to your point about group work you know, it's not very meaningful to put students in groups and just ask them to work together unless they're working together on some good task. Similarly, it's not enough to tell teachers, oh, please start learning together or thinking together if you haven't defined the thing they're working together on. So, you know, know, there's like a double problem that we've put teachers in. Not only have we outsourced to each individual teacher uh, the project of figuring out how to help students learn, how to teach, we've also outsourced to them what they should be helping students learn to know in the first place. And if you leave both of these open to discretion, you really close the door on a lot of productive collective learning opportunities because everybody will be working on a different goal towards a different goal. And that creates chaos and lower levels of learning for everyone. And makes it really dangerous when kids switch schools. Exactly right. That too. Yeah, transience problem. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious how you think that applies to university level. Yeah, I was just thinking that too. Yeah, honestly, I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, my situation is idiosyncratic in that I teach at a small Christian liberal arts college where teaching really is at the premium and publication is something that 
a lot of us do on the side, but it's not really the heart of what we do. So uh, it, it really is a place where I, we also teach 4-4, so what are you going to do with that? But uh, it really is one of those things that, you know, I've had the last five years now going on six to really think about teaching practice. And of course, I mean, I was hired as a faculty trainer, you know, even though I'd never been faculty before, I'd only been a grad student, which is its own story. But, you know, it's really given me opportunities to think about these sorts of things. Now, Elizabeth, I'm going to antagonize you just a little bit here. Uh, And I always try to announce that before it happens. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I noticed is that when you turn your attention to American schools, your attention tends to focus on charter schools. Uh, never once did I see any, uh, you know, good district union public schools going on in this book. Is that just an accident of where you had access or was there a reason that you stayed away from teachers unions? Well, I, I do write about schools that are operating outside the district context, charter schools, but I also write about district schools. So the school that I tried teaching at myself that my friend Andy uh, Snyder teaches, where he teaches, is a New York City public school. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't realize that. And the Boston Teacher Residency Program that I write about serves the Boston public schools. Um, But but you're right that I focus on charter schools more. And the reason is that, so we have to ask, let me step back one step. What is it that enables the Japanese schools to succeed? It's everything we've talked about. It's structures that support common learning goals that the teachers can work toward together. It's structures that give the teachers time to work on those common learning goals together. And it's uh, ways of working that structure jobs so that there can be subject-specific cohorts so that teachers can watch each other teach. Um, So these features are all important. And researchers who have studied what makes countries like Japan and other countries that outperform the U.S. do so educationally, what supports that? They call these features educational infrastructure. And when they've tried to find cases of infrastructure thriving in the U.S. context, they have not found them. It seems that one of the conclusions is that the governance structure of American public education cuts against the possibility of infrastructure because it is so chaotic and there's a lack of commonness. It's almost built against that. We have mm-hmm. a federal structure, a state structure, district structures within districts, uh, principals can make many decisions for themselves. So there's a very um, a lot of conflicting messages that get sent to schools that prevent uh, this kind of strong infrastructure from developing. And the only place that we've seen it develop is outside of the district, primarily in networks of charter schools that are building something really different. Um, That comes with some real problems. Uh, These charter schools are not governed as democratically as public district schools are. Um, They're less accountable to the direct communities they serve. They have the potential not to to serve students with high levels of needs who may not have access to applying to a charter school. So there's real problems here and things to think about, but the reality is this is where we've seen educational infrastructure thrive in this country. So let me follow up on that and ask you, I mean, and, and again, I'm asking this because I publicly self-identify as a labor leftist, I'm big on unions, Uh, what would you say to teachers' unions so that they could benefit from the research and the reporting you've done in this book? Well, I don't don't think that that one of the structures... You may be asking at this point, what happened there? I was too. Unfortunately, Elizabeth Green's phone dropped the signal... And we had to conclude the interview in Medius Res entirely too quickly. But hopefully this won't be the last crossover project with Craftlit. In the meantime, this is Nathan Gilmore thanking you listeners in behalf of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt, and our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. This is Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you once again for listening.